This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I just want to give a quick uh, sort of overview of, of, uh, what, of my perspective of what's going on with building decarbonization right now. And as you, you all know, buildings and infrastructure account for nearly 39% of all global CO2 emissions. So if we're embarked on decarbonizing buildings, uh, we're, we, we've picked a very uh, important place to, uh, to apply our intelligence. Um, a relatively new activity is the... Uh, ASHRAE Task Force for Building Decarbonization, of which I'm a member. And uh, we are trying to reorient um, ASHRAE, which has been at the forefront of building energy efficiency, arguably for <clears throat> at least 40 years. I know I gave my first presentation at an ASHRAE conference in 1977, and it was about essentially about uh, 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 building thermal modeling, but, uh, you know, they've had the ASHRAE Standard 90. I can't remember. The first one of those was maybe 1975. So been in the building energy efficiency uh, space for quite a long time, and we're trying to reorient them uh, into the uh, carbon or de building decarbonization space, of which energy efficiency is an important part but it's not the only part. Uh, I'm also uh, working on a couple of the, uh, uh, I'm involved with a couple of working groups uh, that are supporting uh, New York City Local Law 97, uh, and that is a building carbon emissions limitation law. Um, the working groups are uh, informing uh, New York City Department of Buildings uh, on the process of writing the regulations that implement this law. And here's the time frame that we are looking at. It's a very complex issue. Lots of different stakeholders with lots of very different agenda. And so we're just uh, <clears throat> trying to get something on the books uh, with regard to the regulations uh, in, in concert with this, uh, uh, this schedule. So four basic steps to building this decarbonization. Maximizing the energy efficiency of the energy consuming systems within the building. Elimination of consumption of CO2 equivalent energy sources within the building by electrification or substitution of renewable delivered fuels, <clears throat> decarbonization of the electric grid, and minimization of refrigerant leaks or substitution of non-CO2E refrigerants. So when we're looking at maximizing building energy efficiency, we go through a process of, uh, of adding uh, uh, um, different uh, um, energy conservation measures and this is a this is a uh, uh, um, a, a graphic from the ashray advanced energy design guide 
for zero energy K-12 schools. And I was on the committee that wrote that document, but showing the different types of uh, uh, the application in appropriate order of the different energy conservation measures and the impact of those uh, uh, measures on the, the building EUI. So um, there are four issues. Uh, if, if we are going to talk about uh, uh, alternative fuels, non-CO2E uh, uh, delivered fuels, we need to evaluate them from, from, multi, from four different perspectives. And so those four perspectives are sourcing overhead. What damage does the creation of this fuel do to the planet? Uh, conversion efficiency. How efficient is the conversion of this fuel to the desired end uses? Recognizing that people don't need energy. People need light. They need to make it to the 35th floor without having to walk all the way. They need their iPad to work. Those are the things that they need. And the question is, you know, how efficient uh, is uh, a particular fuel uh, toward meeting those desired end uses. And we need to look at the entire chain of conversion, and I'll address that in a moment. We look at, need to look at energy transport because almost certainly the source of the fuel is not the place where it will be used at the end. So how efficient, safe, and, and cost-effective is it to transport the fuel uh, from its... Uh, place a manufacturer to the end use location. And then finally, energy storage. How safe, easy, and space or mass efficient is the fuel to be stored for later end use conversion? Realizing that, um, you know, only a very few delivered fuels will actually be uh, delivered to the site on an as needed basis. Some of them will be delivered in bulk. And the question is, uh, how bulky are they? if we have to have them delivered and then store them for use over a period of time. So comparing the different uh, alternative fuels, uh, many of these, and uh, uh, with regard to the greenhouse gas emissions uh, compared with, uh, uh, with, with fossil fuels, uh, standard fossil fuels, we see that some are much better than others, but this is only addressing the carbon emissions component. The other components, uh, some of these may have a very low uh, uh, carbon emissions uh, uh, characteristic, but they may be very hazardous to the environment for other reasons. So uh, there, there's a you know multiplicity of issues with regard with regard even to something like the sourcing overhead. <sighs> so there and and even something like biomass, for example, there are challenges to the implementation of biomass uh, uh, for use for uh, renewable energy. And as you may well know, uh, uh, many locations in Europe. Uh, are in fact uh, getting their uh, a low carbon uh, um, uh, rating uh, through the use of of uh, wood pellets that are sourced uh, from the United States and are arguably being produced in a very non-sustainable manner. So if we look at something, for example, like uh, agricultural waste, 
and conversion of that to a uh, uh, a renewable fuel, a non-CO2E delivered fuel, we look at the energy uh, density of the raw source. And this waste product has a very low energy density, and that decreases the effective collection radius. So we just do a little arithmetic around this, uh, lower heating value of the agricultural waste, uh, uh, how much uh, uh, electricity does it produce? Uh, what are the uh, maximum losses for material uh, handling? Uh, how much does it cost? Uh, how much energy is consumed by the collection vehicle? And we wind up with a, a number that 80 miles is the maximum radius for waste co uh, uh, collection for this biofuel to uh, have a, a net positive uh, uh, energy characteristic. So when we uh, um, uh, the the when we talk about uh, uh, decarbonization of buildings and removal of of uh, of CO two e fuels, uh, we're basically talking about uh, uh, replacement uh, of the the fuel for three processes in the. In, in the building. And those are uh, uh, space heating, service or domestic water heating, and cooking. And there are some uh, good technologies uh, increasing in efficiency as we go along uh, to uh, providing those uh, 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 those end uses in a, in a, in a uh, using electricity as a fuel. Um, so we have, uh, you know, uh, air source heat pumps. Uh, we have heat pump water heaters, uh, um, and we have uh, electrical induction cook cups, which I did a little uh, investigation of, and turns out that uh, that uh, in many cases the um, carbon emissions, uh, total carbon emissions per, uh, let's say, uh, unit mass of cooked foods. Uh, is less for this all-electric source than it is for gas. And the reason for that is with the induction cooktop, if you size the pan to the size of the piece of food that you're cooking, there's far less transmission of heat, loss of heat to the kitchen environment than there is with gas. Arguably, gas burner you know, puts a small percentage of the heat into the food and the rest goes into the room. But if you have an appropriately sized fan, uh, pan with, a, uh, with an induction cooktop, most of the heat goes into the food. So, uh, when we talk about uh, 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 electrifying uh, space heating, one of the things that we really need to look at is um, the concept of harvesting internal heat gains within the building uh, to deploy uh, to the building perimeter to meet the heating loads at the perimeter. So I know uh, in Santa Barbara you don't have this issue, but in New York City we do. And so uh, this is looking at uh, an energy modeling uh, a graph of energy modeling result for a short period of time, uh, several days for a building in New York City. And what we have uh, in blue 
is the outdoor temperature. And what we have in aqua is the thermal balance of the building, showing that it is in a significant deficit for some time and in a significant surplus at other times. And it goes back and forth depending upon, you know, whether it's a, a, a work day or a weekday and, and depending upon the weather. And so arguably the most energy uh, uh, efficient uh, place to harvest heat is from inside the building itself if that exists. And you can see here all of a sudden that the, the, how relevant a thermal storage becomes. Because if we've got this surplus, it would be terrific if we could park it someplace and then use it to meet this, uh, the, the thermal deficit that is going to occur later on. We have some challenges uh, with regard to uh, the electrification, let's say, of, of either space heating or domestic hot water. And this is, this is more or less to scale, showing the size of a 6 million BTU an hour boiler, gas fired, and 6 million BTUs an hour of air source heat pump capacity. And while the relationship between the space requirement and the first cost is not completely linear, there is a significant relationship. So clearly this alternative is going to cost many times more first cost than is this alternative, and we need to overcome that issue. So when we talk about the key strategies for building electrification, you know, they do vary by a climate. So if we look at a heating climate, uh, so uh, strategies for electrification there are to configure the space heating system to use the lowest possible source temperature. Most of the older buildings in New York City uh, that have hydronic heating, uh, the systems, the, the uh, baseboard convectors, the coils and the fan coils or what have you, they're sized for 200 degree hot water approximately. Why is that? Because uh, that is the lowest first cost alternative. And before we had condensing gas boilers, there was really no energy efficiency advantage to be gained by producing hot water at uh, 140 degrees or 120 degrees compared to 200 degrees but arguably the first cost of implementing a system in terms of the size of the pipes, in terms of how much coil you have to have uh, at the point of use uh, to transfer the heat uh, to the space. The first cost of, of heating with uh, 200 degree hot water is much less than the cost of heating with 100 or 120 degree hot water. However, when you get into uh, an electric uh, uh, sourced uh, heating alternative uh, using some type of uh, refrigeration uh, 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 cycle uh, to make the hot water sort, uh, with, with uh, heat source from either the outdoor air or inside the building, you'll be much more, much, much more energy efficient if you can do that with a low temperature as compared with a high temperature. Uh, use passive heat recovery for all effluents in the building, exhaust air, wastewater, et cetera. All of those sources of heat are gonna be at a much higher temperature uh, throughout much of the heating season than is the outdoor air. So if you can do that, and in fact, uh, just 
finished working on a project for an, a very large existing building with a lot of exhaust and a lot of ventilation air, but the, the, the exhaust outlet and the ventilation air inlet are not co-located, so very difficult to do any kind of passive heat recovery. So what we're doing is we are installing an air conditioning system that will air condition the exhaust air, drop it from whatever it's being exhausted at from the building, 72 or 74 degrees, down to 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And we can use the rejected heat from that to uh, supplement the space heating requirement in the building. And the COP of doing that is much, much better than the COP of extracting that air from 20 or 25 degree Fahrenheit outdoor air. Um, obviously, uh, uh, also, uh, and that's an example of harvesting all internal heat gains by active cooling and use the rejected heat for space heating. I used to think I was so smart when I configured my system to do free cooling all winter long, not realizing that I'm throwing away a valuable resource. That heat could be used to heat the building if we were to uh, if we were to harvest it, and that's the 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 strategy that uh, we're pursuing on a number of buildings, both new buildings and retrofit in New York City, to try to let no BTU escape without being exploited to the maximum extent. Obviously, we want to minimize the envelope and infiltration heat losses because that will lower uh, the uh, the balance point temperature of the building. That is the temperature at which uh, the building uh, um, uh, reverts from being uh, 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 thermally uh, positive to thermally negative. And so uh, that reduces the number of hours uh, uh, in which we will have to go to the outdoor air as a thermal resource to heat the building. Humid climates, different strategies. Uh, important strategy whenever you're doing dehumidification is to separate the dehumidification from the sensible cooling because the, the dehumidification requires low temperature. You have to take some volume of air down to a temperature generally lower than about 53 or 54 degrees Fahrenheit to get a dew point temperature that will be consistent with maintaining comfort conditions in the space, which 75 degrees Fahrenheit, 50% relative humidity, uh, which is a 55 degree dew point. So doing the arithmetic and what's really interesting, you know, much of the analysis for these kinds of things uh, just is really accessible, at least in a, in a sort of back of the envelope way by very simple arithmetic. So we want to separate this dehumidification because we can we we need the low temperature cooling to do that from the sensible cooling, which we can do with a much higher temperature. And so, for example, if we're making 42 degree water for the dehumidification, um, we will wind up with a, a a chiller with an efficiency of between 0.55 and 0.6 kW per ton. Whereas if we're making 55 degree water to do the sensible cooling, we're we're looking at a, 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 a we're looking at a chiller that's going to be operating at 0 0.40, 0 0.41 kW per ton. So that's a very significant uh, decrease 
and the amount of energy required to do the same amount of cooling, all because we're, we're cooling at the appropriate temperature. And also in humid climates, recovering the dryness from the exhaust air. So enthalpy wheels uh, that, uh, that uh, recover dryness from the exhaust air to partially dehumidify the incoming ventilation air. Dry climate strategies control the solar heat gain to provide space heating when necessary and to avoid overheating when you don't need that uh, heat. Provide all cooling at the highest possible temperature because you don't have to dehumidify. Consider solar thermal domestic hot water and use free cooling, air side economizer, or natural ventilation when no space heating is required. Those are very you know, general rules of thumb, but a guideline um, for strategies to pursue. So we look at the typical energy conversion path and once again, apply a little arithmetic to it. We start with our fossil fuel, which we burn to, to, to generate heat flow. And then we uh, <clears throat> take that uh, steam uh, through a turbine and make kinetic energy, which turns a generator, which makes electricity. And we transport that across the country. And we put that into our uh, refrigerator, which might have a COP of somewhere around two or two and a half or something like that. And what we get for making cooling, which is our end use that we're, near, that we're focusing on this case. So a BTU of fossil fuel results in 0.54 BTU of cooling inside your refrigerator. So we need to, we need to keep track of uh, the entire energy conversion sequence uh, from the source uh, to the end use. So when we look at uh, electrification and grid decarbonization, we can look at the multiple steps. The first uh, step uh, is where we are base case with our on-site natural gas. And, and then uh, basically uh, uh, we go to uh, um, uh, our heat pump technology uh, so that uh, the only fuel that's actually being delivered uh, to the uh, to the building for all of its uh, uh, end uses is electricity and heating, domestic hot water provided by heat pump, and then ultimately uh, when we have uh, the uh, entirety of the uh, of of the uh, grid uh, decarbonized, then we we wind up with our carbon free solution. Uh, we've heard some uh, discussion about the uh, the duck curve and and uh, and this uh, uh, basically uh, uh, the in, in this case what we're looking at here is for the uh, kaiso uh, the uh, over uh, an average day what is the what are the number of megawatts that are uh, produced from uh, non-renewable uh, sources and we can see uh, these are dropping and this is what ultimately predicted and we have an issue uh, at some point where the um, um, where the contributions of customer uh, renewables uh, is in fact uh, greater uh, than the power need beyond the uh, 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 non-controllable base load generation 
and the utility has to begin to curtail uh, its renewable production in order to maintain um, the uh, uh, um, stability of the grid. And when we look at your, your basic net zero building, what we see is that uh, it is uh, got its uh, uh, photovoltaic uh, uh, production. Uh, it's got its uh, building demand. And when we concatenate those two together, what we see is that uh, uh, we are wanting to export this green segment to the grid precisely during the time when the grid doesn't want it. Okay, and this is a significant problem. <clears throat> Obviously, different areas have different uh, 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 curves of this type. Uh, and here we're looking at curves for different types of days uh, in the Southwest Power Pool, I think that's called, uh, New York ISO, uh, KISO, and ERCOT, which is Texas, I believe. Uh, and so different uh, curves. Uh, and so what that means is that if we are to intelligently operate our building uh, to minimize uh, uh, the, the total uh, carbon emissions for supplying the energy needs and the electrical needs of the building, we'll need different strategies in different locations. And this is a problem even in Europe. This is something I I, I pulled off the internet for Germany, uh, showing two different kinds of days and and, and showing a problem uh, uh, here where we've got zero wind and and 16% hydro biomass and 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 the issue there and here we have uh, basically uh, uh, we have 90. 7% renewable, and very likely we're going to have some curtailment of that uh, of the utility uh, renewables because of customer renewable contributions. Um, so energy storage is the key to aligning the grid and the building. Obviously, behavioral change is one is one uh, characteristic, but as we saw, you know, looking at the uh, the thermal balance of the building, behavioral change isn't going to get you past that problem, and you need thermal storage. So here we have, uh, this is a, a, a flow diagram for an ice-making system and some, some images of, of some ice-making systems that, uh, that I was involved with in the past. <clears throat> but in the circumstance of decarbonization, they may be used differently because uh, 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 apropos to a comment I made uh, 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 earlier today, um, in the past, um, ice storage was was implemented to reduce peak demand, which typically would uh, uh, occur, you know, in mid afternoon of a hot, possibly sunny summer day, and so basically you would uh, uh, provide all the uh, cooling needs for your building. Uh, outside of that uh, <clears throat> peak period with your regular uh, uh, chiller plant, but you would try to shave as much as possible of the peak demand during using the chiller. But in a decarbonization scenario, it works differently because what happens is we're going to do all of our refrigeration uh, during the middle of the day when the sun is out, 
and we have significant photovoltaic contribution either to the grid or to the building or both. And then once we get uh, outside of this period when the sun is shining, uh, we're going to do all that cooling with the ice we made up here. A completely different scenario. No longer managing congestion, but now trying to, uh, to uh, 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 shift uh, our electric consumption to periods of time when the sun is out and the PVs are producing. So we have both uh, customer electrical uh, uh, storage and we have utility storage. Here is a pumped hydro installation. Both of these are very important. The uh, grid can uh, raise its, uh, its uh, uh, we can store um, uh, uh, electricity generated by renewables during the period of time that that's available by pumping water into this upper reservoir and then it will re recover it by uh, allowing it to come downhill through uh, uh, turbines uh, to generate electricity uh, when there's not so much renewable content on the grid. But that's really not that capable of dealing with uh, some of the very local issues. So the, the, the point here is that both of these are very valuable to the decarbonization effort. Um, just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, refrigerant leakage, something that's that's overlooked. But uh, 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 there are some studies out there that indicate that the uh, CO2 emissions from refrigerant leakage or cooling systems is about 25 to 30 percent of the total cooling systems uh, emissions over the life of the uh, of the of the system, uh, which is a big deal. <coughs> and so addressing this whole life cycle. Uh, 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 refrigerant leakage issue, what happens when you originally make it, when it's originally transported, when the uh, equipment is charged, what happens uh, during servicing, uh, during the life of the equipment, and then what happens to the refrigerant when the uh, equipment goes out of service. Very big, very important uh, issue for CO2 equivalent emissions. And just finally, uh, some notes. Uh, uh, Igor asked me to, to talk briefly about the uh, impact on the COVID of the COVID pandemic on building decarbonization. Just a few points. Uh, carbon emissions from buildings and construction fell significantly in 2020, but significant reliance on coal may offset any gain because of the supply chain issues uh, with regard to uh, natural gas and some other fuels. Uh, remote working lowers both building internal heat gain and ventilation requirements. So you have, if you've got a, a, a building which is harvesting internal heat uh, and nobody's there using their computer, there's less to uh, less heat to harvest. But on the other hand, uh, the ventilation requirements are less, and so the heat loss from ventilation would be less. Uh, Aerosol-free air to limit virus transmission can either be outdoor air or highly, uh, whoops, uh, filtered air. And so the ASHRAE Task Force, Epidemic, Epidemiological Task Force, established some guidelines for, for air turnover and air delivery and, and really stressed the importance of maintaining something like six air changes per hour through MER 14. Uh, and to do that would require extensive modifications to most existing HVAC systems. 
However, HVAC systems that separate, that separate temperature control from dehumidification can maintain higher turnover rates with minimum energy efficiency. Our conventional, uh, in, in dehumidifying climates, our conventional VAV system keeps a constant supply temperature to control the dew point and varies its uh, cooling capacity by varying the airflow. However, much of the time, uh, that system will be operating at far below the six air changes per hour required uh, to take the aerosols out of the air. So separating so that uh, you do the dehumidification through the uh, outdoor air ventilation stream, which is constant, and then doing the sensible temperature control uh, with turnover through uh, some local fan coil or something like that, where you can vary the supplier temperature to vary the capacity and not vary the <coughs> the airflow and thus the turnover across the filters. <clears throat> In New York City, the business downturn caused by the pandemic does not seem to have reduced investment in building carbon emissions mitigation uh, for compliance with NYC Local Laws 97 that imposes these fines for emissions from prescribed limits. I'm working, I'm seeing a lot of projects, working on some of them that are looking at the electrification and significant decarbonization, and that doesn't seem to be a, 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 have been impacted that much by the pandemic. And I'm over my time, so I apologize for that. Thank you, Dan. Uh, uh, we, as I said, we built some time into um, you know discussion time. So I uh, hope time everybody. Any any questions from the audience? I, I want to thank you for this very broad perspective. It tells us how many different aspects come into building an energy efficient solution when you're architecting a building that's as complex as as, as say uh, NYT uh, headquarters. But anyhow, any questions from the audience or the panelists or audience on this. So Tim has one. Yeah, I have a quick question. Thank you, Dan. It was a really interesting presentation, very comprehensive. Um, my question is just about electrification in general. Do you think that the, the drive and the, the interest, the fervor toward electrification is detracting or even supplanting the aspect of energy efficiency? So we can add all these electrical appliances, but how efficient are those electrical appliances are going to electrify our building, but then just greater demands then. So what's thoughts around that? So there's a lot of uh, work going on studying that. And I mentioned that previously, you know, for example, Manhattan and, and uh, you know, very, very substantial electrification of space heating and domestic water heating in Manhattan likely would not change it from, uh, or if it did change it to winter peaking, it would be a, a very, by a very small uh, margin that it became winter peaking. But I think the answer is no, we are, you know, out there in the field, we are still uh, very interested in energy efficiency, and we are searching around, you know, for the the highest efficiency air source heat pumps. And you know, when 
when when I come up with a new one that at zero Fahrenheit and a hundred degree water supply is a COP of 2.4 rather than 2.25, I mean that just made my day, right? So so no, we are we are definitely uh, looking at that with the with the realization that in the long term, yes, uh, energy efficiency will be important, but uh, you know, um, substituting a uh, 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 an air source heat pump for a very efficient, ninety five percent efficient condensing gas boiler is is a, a, is a move for the future. Yeah. All right. Just can I ask one follow-on too is oh, yeah. about the so I mean we've had so much focus on space heating and cooling and we've done a really good job there, I think. But then you go into office buildings today and especially the younger generation, they have so much cool devices, then they plug into the outlets and their destination. So we have massive increase in plug load. Is that just going to offset all the work we've done on the, the space heating and cooling side of things, do you think? If anything, we are seeing plug loads begin to go down. So the, I mean, that began, uh, you know, 15 some odd years ago when we started to get flat screens instead of CRT for a computer. And now everybody's doing a laptop rather than a desktop. Uh, and uh, we're also uh, seeing... Um, uh, and, and, you know, this is within the confines of the building, right? We're, we're seeing cloud computing happening, and that's taking the, um, the, the electric load out of the building and putting it someplace else, right? Yes. So uh, to the extent that we are um, uh, increasing our computational uh, uh, consumption, that may be in ultimately increasing the grid-wide uh, electrical load, but on the other hand, maybe not because uh, you know all the improvements. And this is far beyond my area of expertise, but virtualization and all those kinds of things. Uh, you know, <clears throat> arguably, you know, high-temperature chips and and locating the 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 data centers in Montana or 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 uh, Maine or something like that. Uh, basically, all you need is a moderately good-sized electrical pipe and a gigantic data pipe, and it really makes sense to locate the computer in a place where you can do free cooling the entire year with no. Uh, and when you take the uh, when when you take the electrical requirement for for active cooling away from that, you know uh, that will uh, pay for a significant amount of additional computational consumption. So, yeah, um, I don't think, you know, what we're seeing in buildings is that when we're doing these studies for harvesting internal heat gains um, going forward, we're making ridiculously low assumptions about the plug loads because that seems to be the trend that's going on. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.